Christian Smith is an author that has written a book called Soul Searching. And in his book, he summarizes perceptions about God that he feels are prevalent in the church and and in our contemporary culture. He says that most evangelicals believed in what could best be described as moral therapeutic deism. We could also call this viewpoint the Santa Claus God. Moral, he says, implies that God wants us to be nice. He rewards the good and he withholds from the naughty. Therapeutic means that God just wants us to be happy. Deism means that God is distant and not involved in our daily lives. Uh, He may get involved occasionally, but on the whole, God functions like an idea, not a personal being actively present in our world. According to Smith, this is the version of God that's prevalent in our culture and in our churches. Often without realizing, he says, every culture quietly molds and shapes our views of God, but we can't grow in our relationship with God when we insist on relating to God as we think He should be. It's the same way in our human relationships. If I demand that you just meet my needs and conform to my assumptions about you, you will probably feel cheapened and manipulated. That's why our surrender to God as he is, as revealed in the Bible, is so important. Otherwise, we will have a God of our own imaginations. And so, says Smith, embarrassingly, our American God seems to be an obese, jolly toy maker who works one day a year. Wow. I wonder why he just doesn't come right out and say what he thinks. I trust. I trust that our journey through Hebrews 11 has has reminded us of the nature of our God, has has perhaps challenged us to to open our eyes and to see God more clearly. There There is no sign of an obese, jolly toy maker in Hebrews chapter 11, only working one day a year. What we have seen is a God who is not distant. A God who is never distant. We've seen a God who is is very involved in his creation. We've seen a God who who is very caring. Caring supremely about making his glory known, his glory known in his world. And he's keenly interested in the people of the world, that he has created for himself and is always at work through circumstances and events to make himself known to them. Would you agree that that tends to be the the picture of God that we find in, in Hebrews chapter 11? But we've also learned, and this is important, we've also learned that he's not a God who will be found casually. God is... I'm always a little cautious when I, when I find myself saying things like, God doesn't want this or this, or he doesn't want us to act like this or do this. So, but here's what I think. I don't think he's interested in casual pursuit. 
just isn't. Uh, let's think for a minute about our own love relationships. Ellen, can I just use you and Jim for a minute? You interested in having a conversation with your husband once every two or three months? You know, maybe, uh, maybe flowers more than once every three or four years? <laughs> we can talk, brother. <laughs> Hebrews reveals to us a God who is relational. The scripture reveals to us. A, a God who is relational. And, and to think that he would be satisfied with casual pursuit, why would we think that? We're not satisfied with casual pursuit. Now, I'm not terribly concerned about those who don't know me. What? they might do or not do in terms of their interest in me or their pursuit of me. But, but Hebrews 11 is talking to us about the people of God. I am very concerned about what those in my life think of me and, and, and my heart longs for them to want to spend time with me. Is that not true of our human condition? Yes. We want those who love us to spend time with us because we love them. Our God is no different. Why would he not want us to spend more time with him? Why would he not be interested in a serious pursuit? Don, can we put 11.6 on, on the screen? This, is, this has been a key verse that has driven our series Without faith, the writer says, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. He rewards those who, who earnestly seek him. Do, do we earnestly seek after God? A casual relationship with God is, is simply not acceptable, nor honoring to God, because he's the center of everything. He's the cause and life of all things and, and deserves to be the center of attention on everyone's stage. And You know, here's something interesting that caught my eye this week. The Greek word that is, is translated reward, he rewards, when you couple it with the male pronoun, used in ancient Ancient manuscripts to describe someone who pays wages for a job that is done. Isn't that interesting? Pays wages for jobs. Now, don't hear that as saying that people get paid the salvation that they've earned. That's not where the writer goes here. The verse is referring to people seeking after God and God making himself known to those who are earnestly looking for him. It's, uh, this is probably a crass way of saying it, but you get what you work for. It's that kind of a statement. God knows the intent of, of our hearts. How much do we long for more of him? And I think it begs the question, how much is God worth to us? How much is he worth to us? How, 
how much does the reality of, of, of his love and what he has done for us through his son, how much does that grab our hearts? How much does it shape our thinking about who we are and our lives and, and, and how we live and why we live that way? How much is God worth to us? And I also think that it challenges our idea of rewards. You know, we have seen God make promises to the ancients. That's, that's what the writer of Hebrews talks about. And, and he certainly is a promise-keeping God. But I think the idea of reward is different. And, and to be honest, this is where I get myself in trouble. Maybe you can relate to this. We don't get to determine the rewards. But that's where my mind goes. Give you an example. God calls us as his people to be generous. So, so there is a call in our lives that can exercise faith, depending upon, or I should say, can require faith in us, can cause us to exercise faith, depending on our circumstances. So let's just say God puts someone on my mind or a certain ministry on, on my heart, and, and I know that he wants me to give to that ministry. And he wants me to be a generous giver, as he is a generous giver. And so I think to myself, all right, I'm going to do it. And I'm going to be happy about it. And I write my check, and I graciously, happily give my check. And immediately, my mind goes down the path of, I wonder what the payback will be. Because God rewards, right? God rewards. And so maybe if I give 50 bucks, maybe it's a one-to-one kind of a deal. Maybe I get 50 bucks back. Maybe I've been especially good and it's a two-to-one deal. I give 50, he gives 100. You're laughing. We all do that, don't we? (laughs) To a certain extent. Or I give of my time. There's a person in need, and, and, I, and God has put that person on my heart. And so, so I, I, I give of, of my time and, 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 and care for someone who needs extra care. And in my life, I begin to wonder how God will restore to me those things that I have sacrificed for this person. Again, it's, it's a matter of, of our heart. What is it that we really want? So be careful of this kind of thinking when we talk about rewards. He rewards those who, who diligently, earnestly, intentionally seek after him. The rewards as we think of them are, are usually not very biblical. God promises to reward us for our faith in him, but, but here's what I think. He wants to reward us more than anything else with himself. I've said this to you countless times, that God knows that what is best for us is him. We're the ones that don't know that. And so we want pink Cadillacs and and other silly kinds of things. When in reality, 
Why would God, who knows what is best for us, give us anything that is less than the best? That doesn't mean that he gives us other stuff. We, we, we serve a God who provides for our needs and blesses us and, 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 and oftentimes, just out of his goodness, gives us extras. But God is really interested in us not identifying ourselves with the extras, but identifying who we are and our worth and our value in relationship to who he is in our lives. Does that make sense at all? He created us for himself, and there is nothing better for us than him. And so, as we diligently pursue our relationship with God, as we desire to know him better, as we long to have more of him, I think God begins to reward our pursuit with more knowledge of him, with greater experience of his love, with more intimacy with God, more confidence in his goodness and his faithfulness. The reward of knowing God is what fuels our faith. So it's by faith that we seek him, and if we seek him earnestly, and he rewards us with more of himself, that grows our faith, and we seek him more, and it's just kind of this cyclical thing. And again, how much is God worth to us? How much is he worth to us? And I think, I think that's the question that, that comes out of our text this morning. We're going to look at another few verses in Hebrews chapter 11 together. This morning, it's about Moses, the rescuer of Israel. So let's stand together and read our text from Hebrews chapter 11. Together, by faith, Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born because they saw he was no ordinary child. And they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not fearing the king's anger. He persevered because he saw him who is invisible. Faith, he kept the Passover and the application of blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn would not touch the firstborn of Israel. By faith, the people passed through the Red Sea as on dry land, but when the Egyptians tried to do so, They were drowned. My brothers and my sisters, this is the word of the Lord. Amen. Well, go ahead and be seated. Some pretty significant statements that the writer of Hebrews makes about Moses. Don, can we, uh, yeah, let's let's just leave these up here a while because we're going to work down through them. He refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated with the people of God. He regarded disgrace for Christ as of greater value. He was looking ahead to his reward. He left Egypt, not fearing the king's anger. He persevered because he saw him who is invisible. He also, as we just read, kept the Passover. He led the people through the Red Sea. What picture of Moses' faith 
do these statements create? Talk with your neighbor about that for just a minute. What, what's the picture that you get of Moses here based on what the, the writer of Hebrews says about him? See what your neighbor thinks. Okay, we ready? So imagine that you're describing Moses to someone who's, who's never heard of Moses. What are, you, what are you saying about Moses? What's your neighbor think? What do you think? What picture of Moses and his faith do these statements give us? Without the faith, you have no church for Christ. What is it saying to us about Moses? So God's call to the church, you're thinking, is that we are to stand in the space between God and humanity. Okay, we're going we're gonna to look more closely at what I think is a, is a spiritual picture here. Okay, what else? What else? Holy indifference. Absolutely. And, and some commentators, and, and I'm sure you've thought of this as well, there was a time when he left Egypt out of fear. And then he met... God in the wilderness came back to Egypt, and the next time he left, there was no fear. There was no fear as a result of meeting with God. What else? What else did you come up with? Oh. (laughs) Oh, yes. Amen. Amen. I like that. Exactly. Exactly. And and the writer of Hebrews is, is looking at that from... From his perspective, looking back on that activity as being grounded in the promises of Christ. Anyone else want to add? So, when you study the book of Exodus and you consider uh, the, the position, it's kind of a juxtaposition, really, of, of Israel and Egypt. I, I, think that there, I think there's a scene that is created for us that, that honestly I think is kind of a, kind of a spiritual analogy of of a, a greater battle than, than just two countries, two people groups. God's people were held in bondage by the Egyptians for, for 400 years. Egypt was the power of the world, of the known world at that time. There was no country greater than Egypt. There was no ruler greater than the Pharaoh of Egypt. And, and Egypt stood for everything that God was not. Egypt was polytheistic. They gloried in the exaltation of the Pharaoh and, and, and the wonders of human exploits. They sacrificed in shameful and unspeakable kinds of ways. And after 400 years, God chose to rescue his people in a way that would require great faith and that would humble the Egyptians and convince his people who over the course of 400 years had probably strayed away from intimacy with God, it would convince them that he really was who he said that he was. And I think that there is a lesson that's tucked in here for us I'm so intrigued by what the writer of Hebrews has said about Moses. And, and, and again, I, I don't want to 
be over-spiritualizing something that, that shouldn't be spiritualized, but I think because of the significance of the statements that, that the author makes that, that we're reading together, I think it's warranted. I think we, we have permission. So let's take a closer look and, and see if there is some meaning in it for us as well. He refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He refused to be known as the son of, of Pharaoh's daughter. I think it's a very intentional statement of true identity. Moses refused to be identified as an Egyptian, although he had lived all of his life up to the point where he first fled into the wilderness in Egypt. And he was identified as an Egyptian. He was a son of Pharaoh's daughter who rescued him from his little basket in the reeds. You remember the story. He was born there. He grew up with the privileges of royalty in Egypt. He spoke the language. He knew the customs. And so from every outward appearance, Moses was an Egyptian. But he knew that he was an Israelite, which meant that he belonged to the people of God. He refused to be identified as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. I come away from this statement thinking that it's probably good for all of us who call ourselves followers of Jesus to perhaps start every day with a statement like that in our own lives. I am a child of the one true God. I refuse to think of myself as anything other than that because it will dishonor God. It will dishonor the one who has called me to himself. By God's grace, Romans teaches us that we've been adopted into his family. Because of his love for us, God, through the death and the resurrection of his son, rescued us from the domain of darkness and and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves. That's what Paul writes to the Colossians in chapter 1. And so it seems to me that, that, that Moses... Refusal to be identified as the son of Pharaoh's daughter is a challenge to us to look again at who we identify ourselves as. Or, who do we allow others to identify us as? Are we willing in faith to live into our true identity as children of God? And, and to trust him to take care of us regardless of the consequences of that identity. It seems to me that that's what was going on in Moses' mind. When he came to the realization, this is not who I am, this is who I am. It, it comes with consequences. It comes at a cost when we refuse to be identified in a certain way any longer, particularly when there are those in our lives who count on us being 
that way. There's almost kind of a, a conversion-like experience here. We've, we've all known people who in their lives have made a commitment to follow Christ and their families have not stood up and yelled, Yay, Jesus! But in fact, they have been exiled. Talk to any of our former Muslim brothers and sisters in Christ. Their families don't jump up and say, Oh, great decision. But in fact, they face exile, they face persecution, they face beatings, they face death. There is a, is a cost, and yet I think this is such a crucial point for us as the people of God because we are living in an Egypt culture. We are living in a culture where everything goes, anything and everything. We're living in a culture where the values that drive the system are light years from the values that drive the kingdom of God. And who do we choose to be in that system? Are we identified as a part of it? Or do we come to a place where we say, you know what, by faith, God is calling me to remember that I am his child in this place. And as a result of that, I think it can lead us then to a second reality. Moses chose to be mistreated with the people of God. He saw that one coming. But he also felt that it was so important that he identified with his people as a part of his faith commitment to God. There is, it, it, it's a clear reminder of, of the clash between what I've said, the values of our culture and, and those of the kingdom of God. The values of the kingdom of this world when God is left out of the value-shaping system, they are self-centered and they are self-serving and they give no consideration to God other than what he can do to further the human cause. And, and, and we as believers, this sounds really negative, so forgive me, I, I, I feel happier than I sound. We as believers buy into that sometimes. Subtly, we think in terms of, again, the rewards. What can God do for me? The bigger question, or the more important question is, what has God done for me? In his son, he has made me his child. And so, it seems to me that that we must expect if we are living out a life of faith that is based on the fact that God has, has saved me and has called me into his family, we need to face the possibility, the reality in some places, that we're going to be mistreated. If we're committed to, to standing for and living out the values of the kingdom by his grace and, and, and the power of the Spirit in our lives, and, and, and I'm not suggesting that we do that in obnoxious sorts of ways that demean the people whose values we don't agree with. That happens way too often. We need to do it with a spirit of love and a spirit of gentleness and a spirit of compassion for those who don't agree with where we stand. It's okay that they don't agree with where we stand, we don't have to beat them over the head and convince them. 
what we're called to do is to stand. To stand for righteousness and to stand for godliness in some of the places where the kingdom and worldly values collide and allow God, in the words of my son-in-law who is British, to sort it out. That's his deal. That's his deal. And so we can expect to not be appreciated. We should expect to be maligned and to be treated unfairly by those who are not citizens of the kingdom of God. And that leads us to, I think, the third and and the fourth. I, I wanted to put those together. He regarded disgrace for Christ as of greater value than the pleasures of of Egypt, the treasures of Egypt, and he was looking ahead to his reward. I think this is the Old Testament equivalent of Paul's statement to the Philippians, I regard all things as rubbish for the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Now what is fascinating to me is that the writer of Hebrews says, He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ. And and Sam referred to this, and Monica was wondering earlier, how, how, how is that possible? He didn't know Jesus. But like the other patriarchs, he was confident in God's faithfulness to bring about something better in the future. What we have said in this series together is that one of our driving points is that we know something that the ancients didn't know. They looked ahead to the promises of God for the future, whatever shape that might take. And and primarily it was for a better land, a promised land. And the writer of Hebrews likes to layer on those things the idea of of a heavenly land, of heaven, the idea of, of Jesus. We know that Jesus, the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of of God's being, he is our clear image of the nature of God. And so the writer of Hebrews is saying that the promises of God, even to Moses, made hundreds of years before, are grounded in what Jesus did on the cross. And so, friends, when we experience disgrace for the sake of Jesus... We need to be encouraged with the words of Jesus when he told his followers that those who do not deny him before others will not be denied by him before the Father. I think that's the, that's the well-done, good and faithful servant idea that every follower of Jesus longs to hear someday. That's the ultimate reward for faithfulness to our God. To regard disgrace for the sake of Christ as of far greater value than anything that our world has to offer us and to be be people who are looking ahead to that reward. The fifth statement is that he left Egypt not fearing the king's anger. This is an interesting one. The scripture records a lot of conversations between the Pharaoh and Moses. You go back and read the story. They're not friendly conversations, but there came a point when conversation was done and Moses walked out on him. He literally turned his back on the most powerful man in the world and followed God into the wilderness. 
And he did not fear the king's anger, which could have easily meant his death. Just like that. It seems to me, brothers and sisters, that that our God calls us out of darkness to live according to the values of his kingdom. And, And when we know what that call is, and when he brings into our lives something that we are wrestling with, and it becomes abundantly clear to us that that this value system is colliding with the value system of the God who has called me to himself, then we need to somehow, some way, turn our backs figuratively, if not literally, and walk away. And we can understand that that nothing will happen to us that is not a part of his plan for our lives. And again, we jump ahead to the New Testament and we can read into that Pauline theology where Paul says in Romans 8 that, that God takes all these things, the good, the bad, the difficulties, and he works them together for good in the lives of those who he loves, those who have been called by his grace according to to his purpose. God calls us out of darkness to live according to the values of his kingdom and to serve him only and to find our security in him. Moses left Egypt not fearing the king's anger. There is much to fear in this world. From a human perspective, my goodness, there is so much that could cause us trouble. There is so much that could, that could disease our bodies. There is so much that could kill us. There is so much that could take our children. We as God's people, in the confidence of who he has called us to be, can turn our backs on that fear and can walk with him in the direction that he has called us as his children and as followers of Jesus. And I'm not suggesting for a minute that that's easy. The last statement, he persevered because he saw him who's invisible. Now that's quite a statement. I'm not sure how you see something that's invisible. And nobody's really sure what the writer of Hebrews had in mind here, but, but more than likely, there's some thinking there about Exodus 33 where Moses was just so taken with, God, with what God was doing. He said, oh, let me see you in all of your glory. To which God's response was, that's not a good idea. But I'll tell you what, I'll just put you in this safe space and, and kind of shade your perspective and, and then I'll just kind of walk past and you can see the backside of me. Fascinating story in Exodus. Personally, I think this statement from the writer of Hebrews is, is one of those other truths that we've spoken about in this series together. For Moses... What was subjective had become very objective in his life. He had cultivated a close relationship with God. 
And so the writer of Hebrews looks at that, looks at the times that Moses spent time with God in private, on the mountain, in other places, uh, the times that, that Moses was listening for God and longing for God's direction. And he reads into that an intimacy of relationship and says, he persevered in his life because he saw him who is invisible. He had a relationship with God who had called him into relationship with himself. How about us? Again, the question, what is God worth to us? Is he he worth enough to us that that by faith we are willing to to step out and to, to live boldly? in those places that he calls us to to live boldly? Are are we fueling that faith for that call by, by daily spending time with him, wanting to know him better, spending time in his word, spending time in quiet? Boy, there's a novel idea. How much quiet do you have in your life? I get up so often in the mornings and... And I was, I was reading uh, Oswald Chambers the other day, and he talks about mental wool gathering. That's my brain every morning. <laughs> every morning, you know, I'm up, best intentions, get my Bible, sitting in, you know, a quiet spot, and, and about three paragraphs in, my brain is gathering lots of wool. All the stuff that has to happen today, all the things that need to be done, all the responsibilities, got to do this, got to do that. Can you relate? Yep. Got to push through. The solution is not to give up. The solution is to push on. Because I've, I've read somewhere that God rewards those who diligently seek after him. That includes the mental wool gathering. So, my brothers and sisters, if I can leave you up with one more thought and hopefully it's an encouragement, is to remember, you know, we're, we're looking at these folks of faith. We look at Abraham, we look at Moses, and all that's spelled out about him. It's important to remember that Moses was not a perfect person. I think sometimes we, we look at these, these icons that are in this Hall of Faith chapter, and we think, wow, if only I could be like them. Well, by God's grace and the power of his spirit in our lives, we can be like them in their faith and their walk with God. And the truth is that prior to their faith and their trusting and their walk with God, uh, we are a lot alike. They are like us. We are like them. Not perfect people, but people called by God out of the darkness into his glorious light, called to serve and to love and to make him known through all that they do. And that is our call as well. Amen. Amen. Praise team, come on up. And I'm going to pray as you come. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Oh, thanks for the example of Moses. Thank you that your grace in his life worked powerfully 
And his response in faith opened doors to a relationship of, of intimacy and great confidence and trust in you. We long for the same. We ask, oh God, by the presence of your spirit in our lives, that, that you would stir our hearts in those places that need to be stirred, that you would give us courage to step out, courage to exercise faith, to experience the reward of greater intimacy and knowledge of you in our lives. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.